electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Thanks, Carl. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the month ahead for your money. Will the great bounce back in March become the great give back as a busy April looms? We discuss and debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, Degas Wright, Jim Labenthal, and Josh Brown. Let's go to the wall, 12 noon in the east. There is your market picture. Dubrovko Lakos of J.P. Morgan told us the other night on overtime stocks were going to be down on Wednesday and Thursday. Well, he's right. Nonetheless, the major averages are on track to have their first positive month of the year. The question is, Degas, is this great bounce back going to become the great give back in April? What's your sense? Well, I'm in Jim's camp because I believe and we're fully invested. So first of all, I'm in Jim's camp. I think this is a time that we should be doing your homework around your holdings. And so that's what you really want to focus on this particular market, because what we're seeing is as we get into this earnings season, that we believe that the analysts are being too negative on the expectation of earnings. So we feel that this could be opportunity for upside performance as companies surprise on the upside relative to earnings. Okay, Jim, I mean, I, I presume you're speaking of farmer Jim Labenthal, the man in the bottom left corner of, of our show today, um, the guy who now says my year-end target for the S&P is 5030, 5030. The same guy who said, I'm yeah. tired of hearing Mr. All-In, let's retire <laughs> that, I don't want to be known as that, stop calling me that. And then what does he do? He calls up our producers and he says, my target is 50-30. 10% upside from here, Mr. Bull. Yeah. Well, I am bullish. I'm cautiously optimistic. And maybe that word cautiously Cautious. catches you by surprise, Scott. But I know, I know, I know. Because here's why. Here's why. Let me, let me be simple about this. Honestly, for me, this all depends on Russia versus Ukraine. If you get a stable ceasefire that allows commodities to come out of Ukraine, not Russia, okay, forget Russia. As long as Putin's in power, we're not going to get anything from Russia. We don't want it, okay? But if you get a stable ceasefire that allows food to start coming out of Ukraine, that allows things like pig iron, neon gas to come out of Ukraine, then you can see easing of inflation. Inflation, which, by the way, was easing before Russia, Ukraine. That could take some wind out of the sails of the Fed as far as getting as aggressive as going to 3%, which is what Governor Bullard said. Now, this is a positive outlook that I'm giving to you, and I think it's, a, it's what's going to happen. Scott, it's been 25 years since I was in the military. I know that's a long time, but to this former uh, military man, it does look like the Russians are losing. I don't know how long they can continue this. They're losing men and personnel at a rapid rate. So it seems to me that that stable equilibrium, that ceasefire, has to come into play sometime soon. If I'm wrong, Scott, and this is where the caution comes in. If something worse happens in Russia, 
Russia, Ukraine, then I'm, we're not going to reach my target. We're just not. But I look at earnings growth right now. I'm it, looking for confirmation slowing. in the upcoming season. It's, it's slowing. Earnings slowing, growth is. but still positive. But still positive, Scott. Still positive. Yes, slowing, but still positive. I really think we're supposed to accent the point that it's positive. And by the way, if we get that stable equilibrium in Eastern Europe, then you look into 2023, I see people flying all over the place. Possibility for lowered mask mandates and less COVID testing will, will uh, impact international travel. I can see a pretty positive path going forward as long as Ukraine doesn't get worse. Okay. That's as simple as I can make it. Josh Brown, does it make sense? It might be simple, but is it going to be right? Well, I feel like the, the two things are interrelated, but we should still discuss them separately. And even if you get this ceasefire um, in Eastern Europe, which, of course, everyone is praying for, nobody wants to see any more casualties. Even if that happens, you really haven't gotten to the hard part. And the hard part is uh, not only has the market already done a great deal of tightening. And by the way, the, the stocks have held up considerably well uh, when you look at that. But... We're talking about now shrinking the balance sheet. And shrinking the balance sheet is really what gave us the double-barreled uh, corrections in 2018. The Fed was trying to do two things at the same time and moving too quickly and maybe not appreciating some of the damage being done by the trade war at that time. This is similar, only instead of the trade war, it's supply chain-related uh, inflationary pressure and, and labor market inflationary pressure. But it's the same concept. You're going to try to normalize overnight rates while at the same time um, shrink the balance sheet, talk about shrinking the balance sheet, however you want to phrase it. And historically, that has not gone well for the S&P 500. So we've had a magnificent bounce since March 8th up until now, right? We really fell off a cliff at the end of February, sometime in the middle of March. Uh, we bottomed, had a historic run coming from that Fed meeting where we all basically faded the news. Everyone knew the Fed was going to raise. They did raise. Stocks were off to the races. Uh, and now the VIX is back under 20. And I talked about this last night, but I really think that we're range bound. And I would say one other thing about Farmer Jim's target. Uh, there's a big difference between the map and the terrain. So even if he's right and this year we get marginally above 5,000 in the S&P. I wouldn't rule it out. Even if that does happen, that's just the map showing you where you're going to end up. That does very little to describe what the terrain is going to be like as we embark on this nine-month journey to get to that year-end target. And the terrain is where most people get tripped up. Well, because if you're talking about that level of choppiness in the market and being in this elevated VIX regime, which we clearly are in, not everybody gets to make it to the finish line un, un, undamaged. So I really think that that's the kind of year that we're going to be in, consistent, consistent with the third year of a bull market, which we talked about two weeks ago, historically is mid-single digits and it's a grind. It feels, so that's where I think we are and nothing has changed. It feels, Jim, and sorry, Jenny, I'll get you in a second. It feels, Jim, like it's a little aggressive. Like what has to happen for that um, to happen is but a pipe dream. And that is that let's just assume we get an end to the war in Ukraine. You suggest that Inflation's all of a sudden going to come down enough that the Fed's not going to be as aggressive as they are on inflation. That is so far from the base case 
that I question, frankly, whether it's even remotely realistic or not. So let me let me start by saying I love what Josh just said. I mean, it was so well put. Me I love too. a great analogy. And the terrain is going to be rough. There is no question about it. You're going to be hiking up rocky faces and slogging through the swamp. I think you'll get there. But it's going to be tough, and you're going to have to have discipline and guts to get there, okay? Now, is it a little aggressive, Scott? I agree with you. It's a little aggressive. Little? It's not a lot aggressive. And I say little? that I say that because you see that I say, I say that because you see the ports of Los Angeles. Long Beach starting to clear. You see the cash freight index rolling down. And tomorrow, I'm not on with you, but I will be very curious to see what happens with labor force participation rate. I'm not saying you're going to 2% inflation. I'm not saying that. That's unlikely. Time, time out. You're going to get time a out. breathtaking on, CPI out. for this Let me month. do this, Josh. Before you get in, I'm sorry, but I want to like, I got to hear from Jenny. And then, Josh, I'll come back to you, I promise. But Jenny, I mean, you, you're a fully invested bear, to borrow a phrase from Lee Cooperman. Um, so you must think that what Jim's talking about has l like less than zero chance of coming to fruition. No. No, I actually don't at all. And if I go back to the market letter that I wrote at year end for January, thinking about this year, it's exactly in the range. Because when you say 50-30, that sounds like a big number. You know what it is? It's up 10% from here. You know what that means? That Jim thinks maybe there's a chance, a reasonably high chance, that the year ends up 7%. That seems reasonable to me. It also seems reasonable to me that the market could be down 7%. And I love Josh's analogy. Josh, that's one of the best ones you've ever had. And I've been thinking about it, and I haven't been able to elaborate it the way Josh just did, but I've been thinking of it like we're trudging through mud. We have a lot of stuff that we're working through through the next year. And if things go a little bit better than expected, like the Fed threads the needle correctly, inflation comes down, supply chains loosen up, Russia and Ukraine somehow resolves in a better way, then what Jim's proposing is totally plausible. If those go the wrong way, maybe we're down 8%. So this goes into like, what's bear, but what's bull? It doesn't need to be crazy. If I'm bearish and I think maybe we could be down 8% and we being the S&P 500, I think we can get nuanced within that too. Here's because my problem. Within the landscape yeah. that I am. Okay. okay. Here's my problem with that, Jenny. I mean, obviously. That's the first reaction I would have to what you just said. Obviously, what Jim says goes right. He's going to be right. If it goes wrong, he's going to be wrong. We, we know that. The probability, though, is okay. what we need to know more than anything else. Is he making is he making too bold of a statement given the landscape? If you guys want to talk about the terrain and all that, you got to get through this muddy terrain and yada, yada, yada. Is the terrain just too muddy for Jim's scenario to come Judge. to fruition? I know I get if everything's great, it works. You, if it's not, it doesn't. Wait a minute. But he, you want me to, like, just off-the-cuff probability? I think 35% no, no, chance Jim's right. No, I'm not right. talking about, like, I don't need a number, but <laughs> uh, obviously okay. if things are great, Jim's target's going to be reached. If things aren't, they're not. But what does that really get me at the end of the day, know. right? I need to know what the probability is Here's that all of that's going to happen, given that the Fed is going to be aggressive, they're going to raise interest rates, and they're going to be very aggressive, and they're going to do it a lot. We, that's more probable but here's what it, than, than not. But here's what it gets you. Let's say I give Jim a 35% chance of being right, which means there's a 65% chance of being wrong. Then we need to say, how wrong can he be? And I think when you look at the consumer, the individual that has $15 trillion of cash, right? when you look at the fact that earnings aren't going to grow 9% this year, but they'll probably still be positive. Corporations have trillions of dollars of cash. You have strong employment. You have a strong economy. 
all of those, I think, are going to offset the negatives, which puts you back to Josh's opening thesis, which is we will be range bound. So when you think about like, okay, what if Jim's wrong? I don't think Jim has a good chance of being disastrously wrong. And then you get into timeframes. And if you think, oh, Jim's clients have a very long time frame. My clients have a very long time frame. So it doesn't really matter, does it, if we're up 8% or down 8% this year. If our time frame of investing is 3, 5, 10, 20 years, like then we just need to be fully invested because odds are like over the long over the long run, Jim's going to be right. The market's going to have a positive return. So what do you do? You don't act like a ninny and start to get out and start to panic because maybe there's a 65% chance that Jim doesn't get to his plus 7% on the year. You just keep moving on and you try to pick spots and you try to be strategic and tactical. So you look at the past and you say, hey, Fang worked great in the past, tech worked great in the past, but things are changing. Okay. And okay. so you stay invested. Maybe you invest a little differently Josh than you did. Brown, the point you wanted to make was what? So I wanted to say, well, I agree with what Jenny just had to say. Even if you have a, a, a strong opinion that, you know, the market is top for the cycle or we're going to have a recession or we're going to have a bear. Historically, you've actually been rewarded for building a portfolio that can live through it rather than trying to dance in and mm-hmm. out. And I'll go back to 2018. Mm-hmm. 2018 is a perfect example of that. 2017, the S&P gave you 30 percent. You had to live through negative 2% in 2018 with two 20% uh, crashes in the middle of that year. But big deal. By 2019, you were up 30% yet again. So it, historically, it has paid to not like radically alter how you're investing, even if you feel bearish the way that uh, Jenny and maybe I, I sound right now. So that's a key point. But I wanted to go back to what Jim was saying. I tried to get in right after he said it. Um, I would just say, like, be careful what you wish for. There was this whole idea in the market that, oh, why can't the Fed just produce any inflation? It's disinflation. It's dis- well, here you go. Now you have it. Now we're saying the other thing. The Fed can thread the needle and they can tamp down on inflation without sending us into a recession. OK, maybe. But the probability of that historically has not been great. Um, so I would just say be careful what you wish for, because there's two ways we get inflation under control. In one of those ways, supply catches up and all of these ports open. And yes, of course, that's ideal. The other way is demand destruction. And the really easy way to do that is uh, a suppressed stock market, removing liquidity from from the financial system and home prices falling uh, and, and having a negative wealth effect as a result of that. And I just want to do a couple of charts real quick. Pat, I don't know who's back there. Is that Patty? Let's do um, we got a whole KB squad Holmes. back there. Whole squad back there. All right. Whoever's back there, Vinny, back me up, brother. <laughs> KB Homes. This is a 52-week low right now. Home Depot, please put this up. One-year chart, please. This is a new 52-week low. Today. Today. Um, I wanted to do one more. Best Buy. This is the poster child of people buying uh, electronics for their home. This looks like it's about to be a new 52-week low any minute now. Um, these charts have meaning. These aren't charts of snowflake. These charts have physical meaning in the real world, not the digital world, the world that's built out of atoms and not bites. Be, be careful what you wish for. Are you sure you want the Fed to tamp down on inflation to the degree that they're talking about doing we, in that quick of a period okay. of time? So, because that's what it looks like in chart form when they do it. We, we keep talking about this idea of the Fed 
and, and you all have used it a couple times already, threading the needle. What I find so interesting is listening to that commentary and then reading some of the notes that have been coming out of Wall Street that suggest, no, you know, the, no recession. They're going to be able to pull this off. Not even the Fed, not even the Fed itself is all that confident it. that it can pull it off. Let's bring in our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. And maybe that's the most telling thing of all, Steve, whether it's the Fed chair himself or Esther George or Harker the other day on this network. They're not exactly sounding like the most confident bunch I've ever heard. Yeah, no, uh, it's absolutely right, Scott. They have their own doubts, and, and it really gets to what Josh was talking about. Uh, you can have things work out with the Fed, not modestly, but relatively quickly raising rates uh, up to some form of a neutral level. Uh, and you get all that help from the supply side. You get those bottlenecks clear. You get uh, consumer spending declines because you, you have the fiscal headwinds or, or, or their, their savings run down. Or you can do it the other way, which is you can actually purposefully bring the economy into recession, have demand destruction because you have the imperative of getting rid of inflation. And that's really uh, what the Fed doesn't know what it's going to have to do. It doesn't also quite know how this whole issue with Russia is going to work out. And Scott, can I just take one second here off the cuff here to uh, mm -hmm. compliment Labenthal, Jim, on his blue and yellow uh, tie and shirt right there that okay. used to be in. 10 years ago, and now it's in again. <laughs> it is. It's Those very, are the right colors, my involved. friend. Now, from what you just described... Those are the right colors now. They are. For what you just described, it seems to me that the latter, until it isn't, is the most plausible outcome. That the Fed, I think, believes that the latter is where it's really going to have to be at. They're going to have to do what they have to do yeah. to tamp down demand and, and suppress inflation. Because the other thing's not going to happen quick enough. Even if it starts to happen, it's not going to be quick enough, Steve. You know, Powell starts talking about the idea that we're not going back to the old paradigm. I thought that was really interesting, maybe a little underrated. Um, a lot of the Fed's optimism uh, last year was based on the idea, hey, we did globalization. We had low prices. Why would we not go back to that world? And I think he's kind of given up the ghost and going back to that world. I think he's concerned about uh, he's, he's talked about this publicly. The wage price spiral could happen. It's something that he's concerned about. Um, and, and I think the other aspect of this, Scott, is that the Fed needs to get the confidence back of the generally the general public and let them know that they're willing to do what needs to be done to get control of inflation. Because if they don't, that's when it runs away from Oh, you. man, the credibility issue. That's you a higher heard, VIX regime, yeah. if that's true. You haven't heard anything yet. Jim Labenthal, I saw you raising your hand. You wanted to say something. What is it? Yeah, and it, it wasn't just to remark that Brooks Brothers uh, has gone into bankruptcy, but maybe that's apropos of Steve's comment. On a more serious uh, note, though, I would point out, and I'd like some feedback on this, I'd like some feedback on this, that we are two weeks past the first Fed rate hike of this cycle. Historically, that's been a fabulous time to invest. Historically. We've had at least a year, in most cases, two years of double-digit S&P 500 returns. Now, I'm listening to you, Scott. I'm listening to you, Steve. Listening to you, Josh. I hear the negativity. I'm not blind to it. I'm not blind is to it why that uh, is it approach negativity? is there. Is it, it feels, realism it feels or is negative. it negativity? It feels negative, Scott. 
Well, maybe it's just real. It feels it feels to maybe it is. But to me, it feels negative. And I just want to point out the positive that the Fed funds rate right now is 25 basis points to 50 basis points on any level. That's ridiculously low. If they raise another 50 basis points in May, it's going to go to 75 basis points to one percent. And I'm just not crying about that. I'm still going back to history and saying this is a great time uh, to invest. Tell me I'm wrong. Can I just. I want to respond to that. I think that's a really good point. I mean, the, the Fed is probably going to get to neutral at the end of this year. You could argue they should be at neutral right now. So that whole year is a gift. Uh, the thing we're legitimately debating about right now is what happens in 2023. I don't think there's an issue. And I, I also should give the Fed's uh, other part of the outlook it's due, which is that Powell has said specifically that he believes the uh, job market and the economy can withstand uh, the uh, rate hikes and, and it's kind of mid the horizon like this year. It's really a debate right now about 2023 and where you want to be. Uh, Leventhal is absolutely right that that you have a gift this year, even if you do eight or even nine rate hikes this year. Not crazy. But let me just throw one area of caution out there, Jim, which I think, you know, there's a debate inside the Fed over the following. Is it the level you arrive at that causes things to, to, to be hairy or is it the change? And if you're going to lay on 200 basis points of tightening this year in the funds rate, then there's possibility of some dislocation, uh, hedge funds, different uh, financial players out there from the rapid change, not just to the level, but there is an area of concern about that. And, and Josh mentioned it earlier when he talked about rates and balance sheet. Those are the things that I think the Fed is concerned about and they're going to watch carefully. It's why they talk about being nimble. I just think, Degas, that the, you know, look, yes, that's the debate as it relates <clears throat> to the Fed. The debate as it relates to us and investors in the, in the most near term as we turn the page to a new month, one in which you are going to start with a flood of earnings as to whether what we just did in March with this incredible comeback is going to be given up because we borrowed too much from April when things are going to start to get a little more muddy, where we're going to scrutinize not only the numbers that these businesses report, they're backward looking, but more importantly, the commentary and the guidance that they give moving forward. What we really decide is important enough, uh, it either is or it isn't, to continue stocks to go up or if it brings them down. Jenny? So, yeah, so I think we need to think about the, motivations. And I got oh, sorry, you next, Degas, my bad. I got you next. Jenny, go ahead. Okay. Okay, sorry. So I think we need to think about motivations, and we also need to think about Fed. And I want to go back to probabilities here. So when you say the Fed's saying, even the Fed's saying we might go into a recession, right? We need to think about something, which is they've raised rates 12 times since 1960. Three of those 12 times have not led to recession. So the Fed, who always says we're data dependent, right, they're saying, okay, there's 75% odds that when you raise rates, you're going into a recession. The, all the Wall Street strategists, consider their motivation. Who are their clients? Their clients are everybody who's watching this show. Their clients are individuals. I know, but I want their to know. Their motivation like, I, I, I is to want, calm I, the waters. I, 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 I want to know about what I asked. I want to know about okay, so then let's, what's coming in front of us next month, tomorrow. So then that's where I was going, which is then you look at that and you say, OK, so even if there is a recession, how often do recessions lead to corrections in bear markets? But there's not going to be a not recession next time. month. We know that, right? I mean, that, there's not going to be a recession. We, Here's what I want to know. We just had an incredible comeback okay. that most people didn't see coming, except for that guy right there in the middle on the bottom. Jim Labenthal is one of the few who actually called that things were getting too, too negative. 
We've had amazing moves in mega cap stocks like Apple, which sits on the precipice of $3 trillion in market cap. We've had an incredible comeback off of the lows in the ARC stocks, those kinds of stocks. Some of the reopening names are in there. I want to know whether it's sustainable or not as we turn the page. I don't want to know any more about the Fed right now. Okay, then I'll throw probabilities and statistics out. I think it is not sustainable because what we've got next month is the first time that the Fed is not injecting liquidity. We have earnings that I think will be somewhat emotionally disappointing. We have tightening that's getting real and we just have a hard world in front of us. So what do you think? What do I think is going to happen in April? I think the market will be weak. Okay. All right. Degas. Yeah. So I tend to disagree with that because what we're seeing as we look at the earnings, talked about this recently, that earnings are being driven down by analyst expectations. We don't see that being lived out when, we, when companies start reporting because the business case for these companies will not change this quarter. They're doing some exceptional uh, flowing into free cash flow and really approving their balance sheets as they go forward. So, Scott, to your question, I see the companies actually surprising on the upside given the earnings expectations. And as you look at the valuation piece here, you're going to be looking for those companies that are generating free cash flow, that are still maintaining their capital structure going forward. You know, so I see this as being a, a good uh, quarter going into it. You know what part of my issue is, Degas, is that when I look down and I, I see the investment committee moves, which is usually, you know, um, fairly full of stuff, I don't, I don't see anybody doing anything. Jim's not buying anything. Jenny's not buying anything. You're not buying anything. I'm not, I don't think Josh is Judge. doing anything r- r- right, right here and now. But hold on. The point I'm trying to make, Josh, is that, you know, after a run like this, where are the buyers? Where do they come from? Where is that buyer going to come from? Or are we going to be cautious because of the run that we just had? And thus, the Jonathan Krinsky's of the world are going to be right that even though April is historically a really good month for stocks, we've borrowed too much in March to get back to where we are now. We have the data. Well, we have the, problem, the data on where the, the buyers come from. The challenge is, what, what, Josh, let me, Josh, let me say this. What's Please, happening is that go we've ahead. had a very negative, a negative sentiment in the market. So people are backing away, are not making moves. As I said before, as we get the earnings reports in and they start surprising on the upside, you're going to see a catalyst of people getting back into the market, pulling the trigger and buying those companies because it would actually underline the thesis that they're looking for. So that's what's going to happen as we go into first quarter reports. Josh, last word to you, then I got to take a break. We have the data on where the money comes to buy stocks. There was a shock in the bond market this year, Scott. A lot of people use bonds in their portfolios as the, quote, risk-off portion, and typically they act that way. This is a very aberrant period of time. We've just had the worst uh, drawdown for a global bond index going – you have to go back to 1990 to find anything like this. I think there is a shock given the fact that $500-plus billion went into U.S. bond funds last year, including ETFs. A lot of that money thought it was in a safe asset that then shocked it in January and February because of the speed with which rates went up. There were portfolio rebalancing trades that came where money actually left bonds, went into stocks, and we know that hedge fund positioning was extremely bearish. 
Goldman Sachs talks about part of the unwind and the rally being people who just got too negative coming back into stocks or covering shorts or covering uh, puts. So we know that that has already played out. The question is, what happens from here? And no offense, I agree with everybody's point on earnings growth. Earnings growth is not going to save you. It's mm-hmm. not, it doesn't, it's not mm-hmm. linear with the stock market. And a really great example of that is 2018 once again. 21% earnings growth in the S&P 500. Stock market return of zero, two major corrections. You've got to remember that. It doesn't always play out where you have earnings growth and therefore you have Understood. stock market value uh, accrued to you. It not always, but it easily. often does. It yes, often it often does. does. Over time, over time, over does. time. Yes. Leesman, I'm glad you got that. That's last. why Mr. Wright is right. That's why Mr. Wright is, I think, he fought on the earnings. I'm glad you got that last word. Leesman, thank you. That's Steve Leesman. Up next, our headline got Bank it. of America's Keith Banks on where he thinks stocks are going from here. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry leading on time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Christina Partsinevelis, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Russian troops are leaving the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. The Ukrainian company that operates the plant says when the Russians dug trenches in the area, they received significant doses of radiation. When the first signs of illness appeared, the company says the Russian troops panicked and returned control of the plant to its workers. Republican Lindsey Graham will vote against confirmation for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. On the Senate floor, Graham called her an evasive witness and said he now knows why she is a favorite of what he called the radical left. My decision is based on upon her record of judicial activism, flawed sentencing methodology regarding child pornography cases, and a belief Judge Jackson will not be deterred by the plain meaning of the law when it comes to liberal causes. 
And in Rome, indigenous delegates from Canada's First Nations see a new era of reconciliation after meeting with the Pope. They want him to come to Canada and apologize for the Catholic Church's role in running many residential schools with the stated goal of assimilating indigenous children. From 1830 through 1996, around 150,000 children were taken from their homes and abused in what an investigatory commission called cultural genocide. And I'm Canadian, and this is a huge, huge tarnish on our history. Scott. Christina, appreciate that. Christina Parts and Nevelis. Let's bring in our headliner now, Keith Banks, Vice Chairman at Bank of America, the Chief Investment Officer of Pension and Benefit Plan Investments. It's a big title because he's a big guy. Welcome back. It's good to see you. <laughs> Good to be here, Scott. Right, Thank you. Important jobs you have. <laughs> How do you see the market? I haven't seen you in a while. And look, if I would have asked you this a month ago, I don't know what your answer would be, but maybe it's different today given the comeback we've had. Well, we're uh, first of all, great discussion with you and the uh, the investment committee. So I enjoyed listening to the, the to and fro. What do you agree uh, with? We're more in the... Well, we're more, more in the range-bound camp. So we've been using a range of... Uh, 4,000 to 4,700 for the S&P, um, and we think that's still the, the right way to think about it. There, there's a couple of problems that I think the, the equity markets have in terms of breaking out above that. Uh, number one, if you even assume the more optimistic view of earnings for this year and next year, so take 225 for this year, add 5% for next year, plus get to 235, it still leaves you with a P.E. multiple you know, north of 20 times. That's a very healthy P.E. multiple when you have rates going up to the degree to which we think they're going to go up. And I'll share that with you in a moment, uh, as well as um, inflation. So, um, you know, I think there's a natural limit. You know, our view on the on the Fed side, we do believe the Fed is playing catch up. I think they believe they're playing catch up. So we think um, in May you're going to get 25 basis points plus the announcement of quantitative tightening. And then beyond that, in June and July, 50 basis points. And by May of 2023, uh, we think you're going to see the Fed funds rate between three and three and a quarter. There's a very tricky trifecta for equities. When you have any one of these things that the markets can deal with, but if you get decelerating earnings and rising rates and rising inflation, Historically, that's been very challenging for equities. So given all that, that's why we've been staying in this range bound um, 4,000 to 4,700. In other words, if you think the Fed's going to be as aggressive as advertised. We do. We do. We think there, there's and uh, Steve may have made the point before, but, you know, I think right now they're concerned about credibility. I think they want to show the markets that they are going to be out there. They're going to do you know, they, they're kind of in the we'll do whatever it takes mode or felt that way after the recent testimony by Chair Powell, as well as some of the, the, the Fed presidents that spoke afterwards. Um, so I think that's important. I do think the resilience of the markets and the resilience of the economy gives them even more confidence to pursue the path they believe is appropriate at this point. Feels and that's the one I just laid out that, for you. That feels entirely reasonable, though. Jim Labenthal, who is with us, as you heard earlier, would say to that, Jim... What? Well, I'm, I'm, listen, Keith, first off, thanks for your thanks for your input here. I, I feel like that's more negative than maybe your tone is implying. Um, you know, uh, current analyst estimates for the S&P 500 for next year are 249.52. So that's, you know, you're roughly 6% below that. I would add that those estimates have been going up even through the last several weeks of Russia, Ukraine. So 
I, just give me a little bit more on why you are, as I just described it, kind of pretty negative on earnings growth going into 2023. Well, it's it's um, I don't know if we're negative earnings growth. I have not seen estimates as high as you're suggesting, Jim, although I, I, I take what you say. But we're just looking at, um, you know, a, roughly a 10 percent ish uh, lift off of last year's numbers. Uh, we do think at some point in time, despite the fact that strong nominal growth, and we're going to definitely see that this year, high single digit in, the, in GDP, uh, will, will help on the top line. But we do think at some point you're going to start to see some margin erosion. Uh, and, and, you know, that's going to be contributed partly by strong labor and just strong materials. So, you know, we think when you balance it all out, if you see a 10 percent ish growth rate in earnings this year, which we think is what gets you in that 225, maybe a little bit higher than that. That's a pretty good uh, place to land for this year. And then our expectation is next year, GDP is only going to grow real GDP at 1.8 percent. And that's going to be a reflection of if we see those rate increases we suggested, uh, we think it's going to take a toll on real economic growth. And so, um, you know, to expect maybe another 5 percent in earnings on top of this year is in our minds, a, a, a good place to be. I mean, Keith, let, let's be let's be honest here. I mean, the estimated earnings growth rate for for the first quarter of 22 is 6.4 percent. I mean, we're we're not even in the 10 percent ballpark. And on January 1st, it was seven and a half. So we're slowly coming down. Yep. But I mean, 10 percent seems like pie in the sky at this point. Yeah, and if, if to, to get to numbers, uh, you know, Jim was suggesting, that's well, well above 10%, which I'm, you know, I and we are not, you know, comfortable with. The, the one dynamic also, Scott, and I think, I forget who mentioned it, but it's, it, I think it might have been Josh, but it's a great point. We do have to keep our eye on this, on this bond market because, you know, there, we've had two great bond bear markets, uh, one from 1899 to 1920, one from... Um, uh, 1946 to 1981, and then we've been in a bull market since. But as, as Josh suggested, and it's, a, it's an important point, the losses that we saw in March are we haven't seen in 40 years. Real yields all along the, 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 the curve uh, are, are negative. So, you know, at some point, if you finally see that great rotation out of fixed income, and we've seen 11 weeks of negative flows, which also hasn't happened for many years, you could see a good portion of that going into equities, that Tina-esque type of mindset, uh, which will help equities. But ultimately, it, it kind of grounds back to, you know, what are our earnings? What's an appropriate P.E. multiple? And that, I think, will ultimately drive the day. Keith, I appreciate it very much. Good to see you again. And take care. That's Keith Banks. Always good to be here, Scott. Right, joining us today. Thank Downgrade you. for AMD, pushing its shares lower today, down more than 20% this year. We debate that, what it means for the rest of the names in that space in our call of the day next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind. 
just like Hacker has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we're back. A rare downgrade today for AMD. Barclays says the growth story needs a pause. We've made it our call of the day because you just don't get downgrades to AMD that much. Stock's down 23% year to date. You can see the decline today of seven and a third percent. Very interesting take today from Jim Cramer, who, as you know, loves the job that CEO Lisa Sue has done. Loves it. Even so. I said yesterday the Chapel Trust would sell it if it could, sell some. And the reason why is because when you look at the, at the we can't, we've been restricted. When you look at the breakdown of AMD, you've got gaming, which is not so, which we think has weakened. Uh, you've got PC, which is weakened, but you've, you've got high-performance computing, which is strong. And then you've got the merger uh, with Xilinx, which we don't know how it's going to come out. Josh, what do you think here? I mean, here's somebody who, who truly thinks the CEO is an absolute all-star and would have sold a little bit if he could just because of the fundamental environment may not be that great, at least in the very near term. You know, we, we do a lot on CNBC talking about buy versus sell, and a lot of times the right answer is hold. And I think it, good investing requires you to keep two opposing thoughts in your head at the same time so in, in certain cases. And this is one of them. So on the one hand, you can say Lisa Sue's doing a great job and AMD's a great company, and I don't think anybody could really argue that. But you also sometimes would have to say all of that might be true, and 2022 just might not be a great year for the stock. So as an investor, can you handle that? If you're a trader, that, you don't have time for that. You're out. So I think you have to know what you are. The, the, the takeaway from this note for me, the analyst from Barclays uh, cutting the stock, talking about heightened competition in their big end markets, PCs most importantly. And basically, this is the takeaway quote. We don't have a smoking gun pointing to a correction underway in any of these markets, but it's very clear to us that all three segments are running at elevated levels, meaning things are probably as good as they can be. The core issue here is what will AMD's growth trajectory be on the other side? And the only way to know that is tell me how competitive ARM Holdings and Intel are going to be in 24-25. Well, we already know Intel is going to be more competitive and more aggressive than they've been in 25 years. That's what they're telling us. Mm-hmm. Arm Holdings is a little bit of a wild card. They almost became part of NVIDIA and didn't. How energized is that management now to prove that they should be a standalone company? I guess we'll see what happens. But I think it's a reasonable note okay. uh, and, and, and sentiment that the analyst I, is expressing. I need to hear from Jenny because, look, part of this call is that Intel, to Josh's point, is going to play all this catch up. Now, Kramer threw out an interesting thing, too. Um, speculation more than anything else is that Intel is going to spend all this money. They're going to, you know, try and onshore some of their chip production, et cetera. And he threw out, does that put the dividend 
at risk in any way, which is your bread and butter. Right. So I'll start with the dividend, which is it's probably not at risk. Interestingly, Intel's in our growth portfolio, not our dividend portfolio. So if Pat Gelsinger ultimately decides, hey, a better use for this cash is not paying the whole dividend, fine. But they've paid a dividend for 29 consecutive years. They've raised the dividend for 19 years. And we also know that the free cash flow diminishment as they invest all this money in these new foundries is very finite. And after 2021, sorry, 2025, the um, free cash flow completely explodes. So I think it's unlikely that they cut the dividend. What I thought was interesting about this note was actually that it's a bigger picture. And if you remember, Scott, when I was on on Tuesday, we were talking about Goldman downgrading the whole semi-space because they're saying, hey, these are cyclical. And then you get into the idea of that Charlie Munger quote, right, where he says something to the extent of any great company can be a bad investment just by raising the price. And I think that's where we are with AMD. And that's where we are with this note right now. People are stepping back and saying like, oh, hey, guess what? We remember that semis are cyclical now. And when they're cyclical, maybe they don't deserve to trade at 30 times earnings. Maybe they deserve deserve to trade at 25 or 20. And so there's that difference between Lisa Sue's an amazing manager. AMD's an amazing company, but the share price went up too much. So I think we're going to see more of this pressure across semis overall. And then we step back and say, all right, Intel's trading at 10 times. Teradyne, which we talked about on Tuesday, is at 18 times. Have those accounted for the cyclicality? Probably yes. Has AMD, has NVIDIA? Mm -hmm. Maybe not yet. And that's where even within semis, you need to start to get a lot more granular. Okay, so a minute ago, Jim Cramer tweeted, I want in on AMD. And when Jim wants in, Jim gets in. Jim Cramer's on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, this is a a classically great discussion that the investment committee is having. And, I mean, you know, when I listen to Josh, it's absolutely right. you got to be kind of look of two minds. The the problem I have with AMD, and why we had to sell some, first of all, it became too big in our fund because it was so successful. That's always a nice, high-quality problem. But I also felt that it was going to be downgraded after listening to mm. uh, Sanjay Marotra on uh, Squawk on the Street, because he did not tell the story right about what he's up to. He basically told a story about how PCs aren't that good. And that's at Micron. Yes, and that hurt the story because, remember, Lisa Sue has both enterprise PC, but she also has consumer PC, and she has gaming. And I'm still trying to get my arms around whether gaming has ticked down. That is what I'm really concerned about. Not high-performance computing, uh, not the uh, the new areas that she gets with Xilinx, which include defense, which is terrific, and some auto. But there is just a concern that the street has decided, has turned on this group. And I know I don't like to be able to take my cue from what the street does, but they can really pound you over time. And when you see a, a price cut from 148 to 115, it completely freaks people out. Because that says basically you should short it. So I say give this one its due. Let her buy back stock after it's come down a bunch. Which you said she would this morning. You said, she, said would, she would. Right? She'd buy she a handle of fist. But I also think, you know, I, candidly, as I said this to, to uh, subscribers to the CNBC Investing Club, I, I have too many semis. I've got too much semi exposure. And uh, that's not a good thing at this point when someone who puts a huge upside surprise like Micron did does not, tells a story that gets the stock down 10. So obviously the street, the stars are not aligned to help this group uh, unless you're auto, unless you're 5G, unless you're high-performance computing and nothing else, your stock's going to be in for some, for some, uh, uh, yeah, some crossfire here. So what's a, what's a more reasonable price? But then I'm also thinking that if Lisa Sue does what you say she probably will and buys back shares, you've got a floor under the stock by the mere fact that she would do that. 
Yeah, well, I think that does. I mean, look, the, the, the issue is is that let's say they do four dollars this year, and they'll probably do more than that. But you know, do you really? It, Will it really go to, say, 20 times earnings? I don't think so. But it, it, it was at 40 times earnings. And, and there you start thinking, wow, does it have that maintainable growth when you've got a desperate man like Pat Gelsinger? He's desperate. And he could cut prices and cut prices. You know, AMD's got this great rise in chip. But what do you do with a guy who is uh, really just after cash flow? Uh, and, and needs business like Pat Gelsinger, who's on some sort of messianic cause to save the that's American. Such a great, that's such a great right? point. He's messianic. And so when he's messianic, he doesn't care about what price he sells it. And I, as a rational uh, business person, look at what he's doing and saying, ah, oh, darn it, he's against Lisa Sue. I wish he were against something else. But you know, he seems to be pulling out all the stops in order to be able to be the American semiconductor, including giving away some of his lower-end chips and even some of his higher-end chips. Which so- is one of the reasons why, and, and Jenny... You know, I want to get you into the conversation with, with Jim, too. And, and briefly, if you could, I mean, that's one of the reasons why you continue to back that story amid what has been so much negativity and so many head, headwinds. To Jim's point, Jenny, Pat Gelsinger ain't playing around anymore. Yeah, but I also, Jim, you know, with all due respect, and I think it's a, kind of a fool's errand to argue with you, So, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but I think that's not the right assessment. I don't think he's desperate. I think he's motivated and invigorated. And when you say he, like, he's, you know, cash flow at any cost, I don't think that's the right way to look at it either. Nor do I think, and this has been my argument on us being long intel from the beginning, I don't think he wants to dominate the whole American semi-space. There is room for all of these players. And when we talked earlier for a second about trading mar- or about taking market share, like there's desperate need for, ev- for semis in every area. Gaming, if it slows, it slows temporarily. I don't even know if it slows, but there's room for Intel forever. There's room for AMD and Nvidia and Micron. There's room for all these guys forever. So to me, this is just a giant expanding, Jenny, expanding part pie. Of the, part of the point, you, yeah. part of the point, and Jim, you know, I'll, I'll toss it to you. I think there were real doubts as to whether there was room for Intel for a while, uh, right? I'm, I'm still there doubting. There be. They I'm were earning $21 billion of free cash flow. Guys, what happens if they take all that free cash flow and decide to build as many plants as possible in Ohio? Okay? Maybe the word is because the, because the world irrational. needs irrational? Man, the, man, the man wants to yeah. make America great again through Intel. And that is great if he wants to use every penny of his cash flow. But there are also things called shareholders. And this man, is, like I said, the word is he's messianic. And that requires an irrational I disagree. Spend. You disagree? Well, I, uh, you got to talk to what he's saying I when he was at the SIA. Wants- I mean, he, 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 he's speaking a lot about the need to be able to you know, bring us back again and the greatness. And Intel's the great one. And, you know, look, Intel's an okay company. They do make a lot of money every single day. But I, what I'm saying is I don't know if I want to compete with them at this moment. Mm. Because he just, I mean, what is with the Ohio and the 20, where is the 30 billion, where are all these checks going to come from, Jenny? I mean, I know that he's making a lot of money. they're coming from operating cash flow. But they don't have that much. So, Jim, if you decide to cut price Absolutely. No, no, no. Jim, they made $21 billion of free cash flow in 2020. Well, they'll need every penny of that to do what he's talking about. Yes, that's a lot, but they'll need every penny of that to do what he's talking about. Even after... Jim, hey, Jim, even after, even after building Silicon, Ohio? Guys. What, you know, 
Guys, even after spending. Jim, let me ask you this before I let you go. Even after CapEx spending in 2020. Okay. Let me me ask you this. Can I just say one thing? I don't don't mean to be, look, Jenny, you're you're terrific. I don't mean to be visceral. I'm not one of those guys who wants to come on and throw a bomb. I am saying that I am uh, both impressed and depressed by Pat. I mean, I'm impressed that he wants to do so. I hear you, but can I say two things? Excuse me? Go ahead, Jenny. Just two things on that. So even after their spending, even after their CapEx spending in 2023, after that, they're still going to have $2.7 billion of free cash flow left. So, Jim, they're not spending every penny. They're not spending more than everything they've got. And I just view it one step differently, too. When you say he wants to make America great again and he's doing this to try to do that, I look at that differently. I look at him saying, holy smokes, we just got a huge awakening on how big the problem is globally for semiconductors, for the semi-supply chain at all ends. Like, let's fill a need. Let's fill a need that we desperately need. I don't think it's this messianic thing. I think it's filling but the I need the same look, way you, you and I do Jenny, in our businesses. To Jim's point, I think, Jim, I think you guys are saying essentially the, the same thing for, you know, I, I think it comes down to Different that. Jim, let me, let me ask you real quick, and then I got to go. It's um, the, cost. the cost may be higher than Jenny thinks. Right. I, think, I think it would be great if he could keep it within his cash flow. And, and, right. and the, at the end of the harder. day, you know, I think to your point, is the end of the day the exact motivation – um, can always be debatable, but at the end of the day, the cost can't be. It, it's going to be one thing or, or the yeah. other. Well, I mean, the main reason I call it is, is that you always have to be worried that people think that, wow, he could really hurt AMD. In the short term, maybe he can. Um, I think that we should ask Pat what yeah, he feels about now. how much he has to, whether he's worried about the spend if we have a downturn. That's what I think. And Jim, to, your, to the point that you threw out this, this morning, um, which, you know, again, really caught my attention, this idea of a dividend cut. Um, how likely do you think something like that is? Um, now, obviously, it's, it's just speculation, uh, of course, but it's the kind but, of thing that you think about when talking about and recommending stocks to people. Well, I just think that what you have to look, he, he might, he obviously doesn't want to do that, but the amount of money he's talking about is so great that I think we should ask him if it's necessary, if, if necessary, would he cut the dividend? Mm. If ne- that's what we need to ask Pat. If necessary, is the dividend sacrosanct or is the build-out of Silicon Ohio sacrosanct? That's all I want to know. And I, th- I think those are valid points. Yeah, right? And I love, by the way, uh, overtime, I love it. <laughs> We've got to have you back. I think right? part of this may be replayed in overtime, and we may pull the conversation forward. Well, you do that. I'm back if you need me. All right, buddy? You're always welcome in overtime. All right. Thank all right. you. That's Jim Cramer. Okay. We'll see you Jenny, tonight. thank you. I, you. I love you. Don't be mad. <laughs> Okay. Here, Jim, right. Jim. Oh, I'm not. I love sparring. Okay. Josh okay. knows I love a good spar. That's all I need to know. I didn't want to hang up with it on a bad note. Thank you, guys. No, no you're appreciate the best. I appreciate okay. it. Yeah, as I said, you're welcome here anytime and overtime, uh, obviously, uh, as well. Guys, let, let's do some final trades uh, before we, we get out of here. And I, I really do appreciate that spirited debate. Josh Brown, what's your final trade today? Take a look at Carlisle Group, a name that I am long. This looks like it is snapping a downtrend that dates back to before Thanksgiving. Could be a breakout. Just announced a monster deal. Um, I encourage everybody to take a look at this company among all of the private equity names uh, as, a, as a vehicle for future growth. Degas, right? We like Oracle because it's growing cloud business and autonomous database solutions. Okay. Farmer Jim Labenthal. 
<laughs> a stock I don't talk about too much, Kinder Morgan. It has lagged behind the whole energy complex, and that's just not right. It's been breaking out the last couple of weeks. I think this is the real one. I think it gets above 20 and shoots much higher from there. Okay, Jim with Kinder Morgan. Jenny owns Kinder Morgan as well, and Jenny Harrington. I cut you off earlier during the show, uh, Jenny. I probably could have been more eloquent in how I did that, so my apologies to you. I had to move the train along a little bit, but what's your final trade? Scott, I'm just happy to be on this show. Um, National Retail Properties, one of my oldies but goodies, a 4.6% yield. It's a triple net lease rate. If you want to keep your head down and keep hiding out in this dicey year, I think this is a really safe, secure place to be. All right. I appreciate it. Let's take a look at the market real quick. Dow's down 185. We are still working on the first positive month of the year. That's how rocky certainly the story has been. We'll see what's going to happen in April. Earnings season, the Fed, and everything else to consider. That does it for us. The exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.